Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. Uh, I'm your host, Zach Geist, and today I've got Luis Rodriguez, uh, who I met in Mendocino, California, at a Michael Mead uh, men's week. I wouldn't really call it a retreat, uh, and except for the fact that you're no longer talking on your phone because there's no service, but it's more of an alchemical process of uh, bringing everybody's stuff into a place and ceremony and ritual and seeing what comes, people from all different walks of life. So I met uh, Luis there, and uh, he had some fascinating, uh, deeply moving, touching stories and poetry that he shared, and, uh, as, as well as his son. And I feel that I'd like to, uh, you know, hear his story on the show. Um, and rather than read your biography that you've written out, it's very long and extensive and there's Wikipedia article on you as well. Uh, but I could touch on that Luis is a, uh, was a Nobel laureate poet, uh, in, uh, Los Angeles, I believe, and also ran for governor, California governor at one point under the justice party, as well as vice president. I believe also under the Justice Party, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, has worked inside of prisons with gangs, with at-risk youth, uh, pretty much for the almost his entire adult life, and uh, has raised uh, I don't know how many children, three or four. And, <laughs> uh, and I wanted to bring him on to to you know learn about uh, how we can learn from each other's stories and how people can heal. Uh, from telling and sharing their stories. And, uh, and I, this is what a lot of what Luis does is uh, travels around working with people uh, that have been ignored and maybe don't feel that people can handle their story or that they want to hear it. And they just kind of hold their stories inside themselves. And they find, and what we find it, or at least what we found at Michael Mead, uh, is that not only do the people share, uh, heal by sharing their story, is that other people are able to understand them and also heal because we're all connected in, uh, in this entangled mess that is life. So welcome to the show. So, uh, Louise, maybe you want to share with us, you know, where, uh, where you grew up and, uh, how you ended up getting into this work that I just spoke about because your beginnings. We actually talked a little bit about, we have a connection with the rabbit, which I think gets into my story. Uh, I am a Mexica Ramuri, which is tribal groupings out of Mexico. And you know, a lot of Mexicans don't know what tribes they are. We know we're indigenous, but we just don't know because we just get de-indigenized very easily. But there's still 25 million uh, traditional indigenous people in Mexico. And so um, the rabbit was a name I was given in ceremony, indigenous name. Um, it's actually seven rabbit, Chik Ome Tosli. Seven is Chik Ome, and Tosli is the rabbit. And I just want to mention that because that's where I get a lot of work, the spiritual work I do. It's going back to my indigenous roots. My mother was uh, Tarumara Raramari. The real call, real name is Raramari. They're known as Tarumaras. Uh, she always told us that, which is really important for me. Uh, the rest of my family didn't seem that interested in it. <laughs> you know, I was, and I even went down to the Sierra Tarumara, the Copper Canyon where the Tarumara people are at. 
Uh, I was there. I met some amazing people. Uh, there's 80,000 living in caves. Uh, they're one of the few cave dwellers still in the world. And uh, they don't let people come in there, but they invited me because I told them, they said, you look Mexican, you don't look Tarumana to us. You know, <laughs> you know like, hey, they look at my mother's like these roots, my grandmother, great-grandmother, that's where they come from. And they said, well, that's amazing, that's great. And they go, because the reason why nobody comes back. So they were happy to know that I was interested. Oh, wow. They didn't come back. So I'm, they opened their doors. I got to stay in the caves. I got to meet traditional people. I got to learn. They even built an instrument of the traditional. It's kind of like a, heart, a Jew's heart uh, with made gay wood with a cat gut. They gave me a lot of teachings. I, I learned a few words. It was beautiful. Uh, and it was my mother, my grandmother, or great-grandmother's story that opened the door. That's where my spirituality comes from. It's indigenous. And I, of course, being in the U.S., I hook up with the Diné, Navajo. Uh, I also do work with Lakota. I work with uh, Mexicas, Capulis all over the country. I do a lot of indigenous uh, Native American. Fascinating. So you said when people don't come back, it's not that they die in the caves. It's that they go in the cave and they love being there so much that they don't leave. Is that what you're saying? No, no. In other words, when people do leave for whatever reason, they never come back and say, I want to come back and know my roots. You know what I mean? Mm. Oh, when people leave the caves, they don't ever go back into the caves. Once they leave, they either leave because of starving, because of whatever's going on. They go into the city. The biggest city there is a huge one. is Chihuahua City. There's a ghetto called La Tarumara, and they get civilized. And you know what happens when you're civilized? You lose your language, you lose your traditions, you become diabetic and alcoholic, you beat your wife, you beat your kids. You know, I was in that ghetto, people are alcoholics on the street, a guy put out a gun on me. These are native peoples who have lost all connection to their tribe, and then they become civilized. And so um, I was really glad to see that there's still a lot of indigenous people in Mexico, particularly this tribe, that still hangs on to who they were before the Spanish came. Yeah, I also, I'm a first generation. I'm the first in my family. Were you born in the United States or were you born in? Oh, I was born in El Paso, Texas, but my family lived across the border, Ciudad Juarez. I never lived in El Paso. That's kind of uh, sad because the people in El Paso, when I go visit, they treat me like a native son. They're beautiful. I feel bad because I actually never lived there, but they don't care. If you're born here, you're one of us. Beautiful, amazing people in El Paso. Yeah, I was, I'm the first in my family born in, in the United States. Um, I was born in the Bay Area, and uh, my family came here from Siberia. My grandma and grandpa were born in, in, uh, in Siberia on my mom's side, and uh, uh, they moved. They went to China, and they spent 20 years, 30 years in China almost. And then my mom grew up in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, uh, and she's, they thought that they were going to live there indefinitely, so they all speak Portuguese, and then they eventually won a lottery of some kind to move to the United States and they moved with no money into uh, San Francisco at the time and they lived in Chinatown because my grandfather spoke Chinese and so did my grandmother I believe uh, which they lost those languages and I, I was you know born speaking Russian for some time uh, but then when I was eight years old I think I shared with you I grew I, I moved to the to the hood of, of a place called the Jackson Triangle in Hayward right outside of Oakland and projects everywhere uh, surrounding razor wire in my backyard, you know, and uh, and I very quickly forgot Russian. Uh, just, I, I tried to remember it, like, you know, I, I would try to bring it up. I'd go to my grandparents' house sometimes on the weekends or for holidays, and it's like the language just, it's interesting that you said that it gets civilized out of you or whatever that was living in the projects. Uh, it, 
I, I didn't have any use for the language. You know, the, the most I ever heard was, you know, Zahari, like, like, like my mom yelling outside the door for me to come back in, you know, for whatever reason. But then, you know, yeah. well, you know, we, we, all of us adopted Spanish, but that's still colonial language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you come to the United States, it's an other language. So then you're being put down. I was punished for speaking Spanish in school. I went to school the first schools I went to. And uh, Spanish was weird. You're not supposed to speak it and everything. But we always spoke it at home. But one of the things that uh, I, I want to make clear, I also, like you, ended up in a very rough neighborhood. Uh, East LA is full of these Mexican barrios, a lot of them. More than a million people lived there, and the barrios everywhere. And um, there were war. At least it began to get a very terrible war. Gang wars there have been started from the turn of the last century. But they continued in the 60s and 70s. So uh, we were at war with each other more than anybody. Yeah, there was white people we couldn't stand. There was a lot of power struggle. We probably had the hassles with blacks, but our biggest enemy was our own Mexican people in other neighborhoods. So I got caught up in that world. Uh, I got caught up in the heroin trade. I got caught up in the jails in and out, uh, violence. Uh, I was put on murder row when I was 16. I was arrested for attempted murder when I was 17. So I was in that world that you're talking about. Um, uh, in East LA, in, in uh, actually the San Gabriel Valley. Um, so we were at war all the time. That's basically what it was for me growing up. And I never thought about my indigenous roots or anything. We were Mexicans. We were Cholo. Cholos actually comes from the word for Indian. It was a put down word that the Spanish had, but people just took it on. That's who we are, we're Cholos. And um, I had to break away from that life, that crazy life, La Vida Loca, which I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, in order to find who I really am. And it began taking many roads and journeys to find my roots, connect with the Native American practices here, connect with people like Michael Mead, who's an Irish American, but does a lot of indigenous uh, work uh, with people from all over the world, but also among the Irish. He's very knowledgeable about that. So I have learned from others about who I am, but I think that's kind of similar. I came out of a world that was meant to either destroy me or get me to kill myself in a suicidal, homicidal road that I eventually got out of because now I felt like I had no my roots. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. Yeah, I think I had some um, little, a lot of similarity in the sense that where where I grew up, you know, when I was eight years old, I moved to this place. And uh, I remember my mom, they ended up buying a house. My mom wanted to buy a house. She hadn't ever owned anything. And she got married to my stepfather and, and they, they couldn't afford anything. So they found the cheapest house anywhere in the Bay area. Uh, and that happened to be the house. It was, you know, a little, I think it was a little under 800 square feet, really, really small. And there was a cement wall in the back razor wire. Cause there's projects on every side and there's a park in the middle power lines. And, uh, if you look at like Google earth, there's like, uh, you know, you can see people like tire tracks all over the basketball court you know, cause like people peeling out on the lawn and, you know, still on the Google earth shot. And, uh, I remember that when I moved in, uh, the first week I lived there, there was someone decapitated, uh, uh, I don't know, hundred yards from my front door. And, uh, you know, you had the, you know, I don't know, whatever the crime invest, like a movie, you know, for crime investigation, it becomes surreal after a while you see, you know, crazy shit happening you know, it just becomes normalized, you know, you're like, Oh, yeah, you know, that's just, you know, you see a fight, you know, you just, you, you could feel a fight coming before you even see it happening. You just like you could feel it in the air, you know, and, uh, you know, you could feel 
it's almost like at night in nature where the crickets get quiet when you know a predator's coming like it's almost like you could you get quiet when you're born all of a sudden it's kind of weird even bird yeah. stops singing when you like, what happened to all the noise <laughs> everybody kind of gets that too very funny but one of the things that I, I i did in the simmer neighborhood it was one of the it was actually the time the poorest neighborhood in l.a county but the difference in the san gabriel valley unlike east l.a was a very urban housing project like everything you're talking about the san gabriel valley had these migrant mexican migrant communities so we lived dirt roads no sidewalks little shacks uh with goats and chickens in our backyard and it looked like appalachia or the deep south only it was more dense but the difference was um, we, all those Mexicans had come to pick oranges and walnuts, whatever. All those were gone by the time I got there. So we were surrounded by these white suburbs. And I'm talking about well-off whites. I'm not talking about the poor whites. The poor whites, the few that were there actually lived with us. Whatever poor whites were, they lived with Mexicans. They didn't have their own little neighborhood, really. But there was white people all around us. So we were at war not only with other barrios, we were at war with these crazy white people who hated us and treated their army with the LA County Sheriff's. The helicopters, everything, you know, uh, as long as we can remember, before helicopters was anywhere else, we were under surveillance. We used to shoot at them, I hate to say this. We hated the cops that killed four of my friends unarmed by the time I was 18. I ended up losing 25 friends by the time I got to be 18 years old. Um, and uh, they were, we were at war with them all the time. And that's what I remember. People were going, actually going to Vietnam because they had no jobs, couldn't figure what to do. And I said, I'm not going to Vietnam. I'm already at war. I don't need to. I'm already fighting. So that's the feeling you get when you're in those neighborhoods of being in constant battle. Yeah, I feel you. I, being, constantly, being constantly on edge. And um, I, I, we're, we're talking about, you know, if someone hears this podcast much, much later, we're, you know, we're in September of 2020 when, there's Black Lives Matter protests happening all over the United States. I think even in other countries. I haven't been watching the news much. You know, I I I, I have nightmares about stuff. I mean, I had a nightmare the other the other night that uh, I was being chased by three black dudes in the hood with like bats and na with nails in them. And I'm like, hey man, I'm like, I live here. I live. That was the dream that I had. You know, and they're like, oh shit. You know, like, and uh, I've been in that position many times where. You know, if somebody's visiting from somewhere and then like they start a fight with me like, oh, no, he, you know, he lives right down the block, you know, and then I, and then I end up being OK. But there was only other one other white kid growing up in my neighborhood and uh, he never went outside and he wasn't allowed to hang out with anybody. You know, we like saw him occasionally, but that was pretty much it uh, that I could remember I'm trying to remember if there was anybody else. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a. Uh, it's an interesting time to be alive right now. And uh, I feel like for me, uh, what I find that would be really valuable to a lot of people is to hear people's stories so that they could understand why, you know, why they think the way they think and why they feel the way they feel. You know, I mean, you know, trauma has roots, you know, and uh, it's not so simple sometimes when you're, when you're raised in a certain situation in a certain way, the entire way, that your whole body experiences the world is completely different, you know, and, and the value system is completely different. Like, you know, you don't really save money when you're, you know, living in the hood because you have friends. And if you have money, then you, you pretty much share it with your friends, you know, and that kind of keeps you in that, you know, that same situation. Um, you know, it's not so easy to kind of quote unquote, get out of that. 
situation. I don't know if uh, you want to touch on that. One of the things is that, uh, as you might know from reading my books, if you get a chance, uh, my oldest son uh, joined a gang in Chicago. I lived in Chicago 15 years. He was sent to me, but I didn't raise my son. I didn't raise my daughter. So they were always pissed off at me. They eventually got both of them. I mean, they were pissed off teenagers. I already had a new wife. Two new babies showed up later. And I had to deal with this crazy dude, man. And uh, he came at me at 13, 15. He joined a gang, a mostly Puerto Rican gang in Humboldt Park in Chicago. Now, this is not like my barrio. This is urban. Three-story flats, all bunched up. You know, Chicago's got a lot of density. And, you know, you're talking about cement. And you're talking about housing projects that were huge. Cabrini Green wasn't too far from our from where we lived. So we... Uh, he grew up in that environment. It was rough. And as you might know, he ended up going to prison. I don't know if you were there when he showed up to Mosaic with the men's group. He'd been out of prison for 10 years. But he did a, a total about 15 years. Uh, one stretch was 13 and a half years. So he really got into that world. And me and him talk a lot. I mean, you're talking about prisons, especially Illinois prisons. Some of these states are worse than others. Like California's got a pretty rough system. Uh, the South's got some, you know, Texas and Louisiana, but Illinois got a rough system. And he was in there and he had to learn how to deal with all the politics, all the fights, the guard politics, the staff politics, as well as the prison politics. And he learned a lot. He's he's 45 years old, so he's a, he's actually a grandfather. He's, you know, he's been up age. But um, we talk about all this stuff because he still carries a lot of that trauma, just like I did. Um, and we have to address it because we're here living together with my two other sons and him, my wife, my dog. One of my sons has a girlfriend here. There's about six of us living here. My son has to maintain a level of um, temperance. Uh, I don't say we're not temperate, but um, temperament. He has to. He wants to scream and yell all the time. He's constantly at war even now when there isn't the bullets flying, but he's still in that stage and we have to help each other we've been i've been at it longer so i can but i watch him even at 45 years old having to address that like you're talking about those echoes of the past that, that are real sometimes you don't even know why he got pissed off something triggered him he can't he doesn't know until he thinks about it all i mean so when you have that kind of uh, world in you you, you got to think about healing all the time healing important part of this work that's why the men's work that we did with uh, with mosaic and michael mead was important the work that we're doing in my community right now the work that i do in the prison since i've been going to prison for 40 years uh trying to do the same healing work i do it through writing and poetry that kind of thing but it's all part of the healing that all of these men and women have to go through otherwise they just continue the cycle they continue hurting others they continue contributing to traumas that other people start taking on and we have to get that break otherwise it get, it, it, as you know it has become generational so that's why it's important to do that yeah you become you become born in it you know I, I have some friends that were you know born addicted to crack you know weighing 14 ounces born addicted to crack in an incubator and you know then they like come out of the hospital never see their mother you know and never meet their father till they're until they're in prison you know and then they meet their father you know and like these are stories you hear about and their friends are shot and their brothers are shot. And, you know, uh, and you say, well, you know, they could, you know, you're in America, you can make whatever you want of your life. You know, it's like, well, really come on, you know, like, I mean, it's so difficult to work through all the, I mean, to work through that shit. And at the same time, you've got, you know, uh, there's a friend of mine that actually is the reason that I started doing this podcast to begin with. Um, he had said to me, 
uh, he said something about like, you know, if people could hear your story, Zach, you know, they would experience a lot of healing. I think he said something even more like, you know, kind than that, you know, and, and I heard that and I never really thought about that before. You know, I didn't really talk about this shit really. I just kind of kept it inside and, you know, I didn't really try to do healing or any, I didn't even really talk about it until I got so addicted to opiates that I had to face it because otherwise I was just going to die because I couldn't function unless I took opiates. And, uh, and I drank alcohol since I was 13. And I mean, every day, all day, because it's the only way I could function. And he said also that same person, it's interesting that you said that your son had to learn all the politics and all the politics is basically like a microcosm in the prison of the politics that are happening outside the prison. And now we're dealing with a time where everybody's in some type of prison, quarantined in their own lives all around the world. It's like everybody is now experiencing a little bit of what every, all, all this fucking weight that everybody that are in the prisons are carrying for the rest of the world. They're carrying all of the compounded trauma and everybody's projecting onto them that you're the fucking problem instead of looking at them like, man, your shit has been fucked up. You know, I never thought my shit was that bad, honestly. Louise, like, I was like, I, everywhere I looked around me, people had it worse than me. So I'm like, oh, you know, people that meet me like, oh man, that shit happened. Oh man, you spent a month in solitary confinement for like some bullshit. Like, oh man, you had a broken jaw. You got your teeth knocked out. You know, you've been in all these fights. You had a home invasion. You had people drive-bys, you know, like, you know, you know, your girl got pregnant with someone else's kid. You didn't find out till after, you know, the baby was born and then they, and then that dude stole your car and then, you know, they thrashed it. They, you know, like, you had to leave the state because people were trying to kill you. And, you know, like you were living in tweaker houses where people are slamming meth into their feet and there's nothing in the house but a mat. Like, oh, man, that's terrible. And I'm like, man, you should hear some of my friends had it way fucking worse than that. And it's like, what do you mean? Oh, they got burned with cigarettes and like hangers and like beaten and choked unconscious repeatedly. And like, you know, their sister got pregnant by somebody, you know, their mom's boyfriend when she was, you know, 12. And then just crazy shit. Like where I was like, my shit isn't even that bad. At least I was like, I could go to another tweaker pad or whatever. When I was a teenager, you know, I lived in group homes and the kids in the group homes, you know, they, nobody even really talked about this shit. And I'm imagining in, in prison and jails, it's not easy to like tease out, you know, people's stories. People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be like, Oh, poor me. You know, I had this bad shit happen. Cause they know somebody else is dead, you know? So how can I talk about poor me when my homie's dead? You know, like, or how could I talk about this shit was hard for me when this other thing? So it, the challenge is, is people are, you know, they don't even feel really right to tell their stories, but at the same time, they're scared to be vulnerable too. You know, I never cried. Like crazy shit would happen. I didn't cry. And I, it's not even that I tried not to cry. Like I, I like conditioned myself to not cry, you know? And, uh, and in prison, as you know, I actually came up with a book. This is an anthology of uh, writing from my class, prison, in the Lancaster State Prison. It's called Make a Poem Cry because they couldn't cry, so they would make their poems cry. See how beautiful the concept was? And so with their writing, I let them be expressive, and they were game for it. They couldn't show those kind of feelings in the classroom. I would have like 30 guys for 13 to 15 weeks every time another session, new guys would pop in. Uh, and, you know, this is a high-security prison. It's a level four, which is the highest level in the state of California. These guys are tattooed all everywhere, faces, everything. It's all black and brown. Uh, they got, uh, they're all buffed. Uh, uh, even though they don't have no more weights, they find ways to work out. But uh, I've had guys with no arms because they got thrown out with a shotgun. I had a guy that had uh, no legs. They're like they're actual war uh, veterans, casualties. They're walking in the prison yard with no 
some of them in wheelchairs because they've been shot or something terrible happened. So, um, but what happens in my classes is I really try to elicit that pain. I really think it's important. It isn't easy, but I create an environment where they feel they can do this. This is why this came out. Uh, make a poem cry because I eventually let them know. Listen, if you can't, if your tears can't fall down your eye, they can make a poem cry. And then they would start writing their hearts out, and then those stories would come out. Their There's stories. a song by Jay Z that says, "It's songs cry." You heard that song, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of similar to that whole idea because it's hard, like you're saying, in the world to be vulnerable, especially men. Men just make it worse for them. They're all mutated as far as their feelings, who they are. They have to put out a front. You know, the tough guys everywhere. And, and, and you mutate your humanity as a man. So that's kind of like what I try to help them get through it. And working with those guys like hardcore killers, these are lifers. These are people who kill people. And see them change? I'm telling you, man, it's possible for anybody. This isn't easy, but it's a simple proposition. It just isn't easy. And it's kind of like that's the work that I try to do. It's amazing work. Uh, that I get uh, out of these men. And as you know, I've, done, I've been invited internationally because I've done like 20 states. I've gone up and down California. I've gone to Mexico to some really messed up prisons. I've gone to El Salvador, went to 10 prisons there, went to Guatemala, two prisons, went to Argentina, five prisons. I'm talking about some, we think prisons are bad here, and they are. I have no, man, these are places you can't even put on the map. They're so bad. But I've also worked with uh, prisoners in England. Southern England, and even in Italy, I work to juvenile offenders. In other words, it's become international, the work I do, uh, because I find that that's an international problem. We, we just happen to be in our country, the country that imprisons more people. Uh, but it doesn't mean that there isn't the same issue in all these countries. People respond to it differently. And that's what I'm interested in. Again, how do we get back our humanity? How do we connect with the wholeness that we need to carry just to keep moving forward? instead of walking the world all fractured. You know, I was talking and I, and I and it went in a different direction about how you were talking about the politics that you learn that are present, the politics of the life that we all lead. You could almost look at the life that we're in right now, and then there's this underworld, like the dream world, right? And then in society, there's this life that everybody's leading, making money, going to jobs, going to school, whatever. And then underneath that life, like the dream world, the underworld, there's the prison system. And, you know, the ghettos, the group homes, and all of the shit that families don't talk about, the pe person looking at child pornography in the room by themselves or whatever it is, that's the underbelly that's calling up to be healed. And we could say that it's not there and project it on the Mexicans and build a wall and project it on the blacks and build a wall or project it on the poor, poor whites or, or the immigrants or whatever. You know, I mean, we got to ask ourselves a question. Why are people immigrating? You know, like, why did my family come all the way over, go to China and then Brazil and then to the United States? Why were they leaving Russia where they had, or Siberia, where they had spent uh, their, their entire generation after generation after generation? In my family story, they left in, in 1917. And the reason why is that anybody that was educated uh, or uh, owned land was getting killed. And uh, they were getting, you know, tortured, maimed, brutalized on the street or thrown into gulags or, or worse. And uh, uh, their stories are brutal. Uh, there's actually a book called Former People that talks about uh, what Lenin had did uh, in order to essentially usurp power. And, uh, and the scary thing is if people don't consciously look at ways to make equality happen, then eventually there'll be an uprising and it will happen violently. And I think that we're getting invited over and over again into like 
how do we look at the people that are holding and carrying the weight of the suffering, like carrying the, the weight of the world, you know, and everybody's carrying it to some degree. I'm not even saying that like, you know, the rich person, the businessman is, is, has it really good up in his tower somewhere. Like he's feeling the pain of the suffering that's happening in the prisons. He just can't see that if he would just help the people in the prisons, he would be alleviated of some of that pain. It's not even that he has it good and that the people that are in the prisons should want to be up in the high rise doing whatever bullshit that's happening in there. I think it's all painful, you know? The privilege is a prison and they don't always see it that way. Uh, able to, to live at that level isolated from the world because you're living in a prison that maybe it's got gold bars, but it's still bars. And I think that's what we have to address. This is the issue of our humanity. It gets distorted at both ends. And if you've been in these poor neighborhoods, you can see how they get distorted. People don't always see people with money are also in a prison situation and they don't connect. They don't know uh, the impact of what they can do. Like you're pointing out, they can actually do a lot of good, but they don't always see. They're being get driven to the stand. I got to make more money. I got to make more money. I got to, they got more money that they can ever do with, but they can't stop. It's a process they can't stop. They're on a, a what do you call it? Those, a, you treadmill, know, a treadmill. Yeah, or a hamster yeah. wheel, you know? And it's killing them. They're also, they're stressed. They're, they're all dying. We're all dying out of the situation that's not healthy. We're not whole. We're losing our, our humanity. Men don't know what it is to be fully emotionally alive human beings anymore. So I think this is like you're pointing out, this is an issue for every one of us. And I, I also understand completely your point out about how uprooted we all are. Every one of us has been uprooted. We're not really in our own lands anymore. We're now we've been full. It could be famine, could be war, could be programs, could be uh, everything that drives people away is forcing us to leave our homelands, our land-based communities. Uh, my mother being forced to give up her indigenous roots coming to the U.S. and being, she couldn't even be seen as Mexican. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no matter where you go, something on top of the other, you're constantly in a place where you don't belong. So there's a crisis of belonging. We don't really know if we belong anymore. I, I noticed that even with uh, uh, people coming from Europe 100 years ago by their sons and daughters, the whole idea of white is, is a weird concept because white doesn't exist anywhere else. You're from this land, you're from this tribe, you're from this nation, whatever it might be. White isn't... It, becomes a big deal over here. All of a sudden, everybody becomes white who have different, you know, origins. But yet now they're all getting amalg uh, amalgamated into a white thing, which to me is a is a nonsense. There, Michael Mebo was pointing out the where's the white? Yeah, where's, where's white, white? white? Where do they where do they come from? <laughs> but here we are. We're white, you know, and and uh, and we're all uprooted, and that's partly the commonality we should look at. How does a migrant soul survive? Uh, knowing that we have a commonality of not being from our origins, and we're always looking for some place where we, we need to belong again. I mean, we we we're in a time right now where it's almost like what's playing out on the world stage is what I've sensed happening always, where it's like everybody's cutthroat, everybody's man against man. You know, in the hood, it's like people are you know there's there's not enough a lot of times so but people have been more generous honestly where i grew where you know when i was a kid than when i became when i i also thought you know shit i need to make money to get out of the hood i mean it says it in all the rap songs you got to make money you got to get out of the hood you got to have that hustle and uh and i did you know and uh i hustled my way out of the hood 
you know, uh, I got out, you know, through some miracle, I guess. And, and then I made money a bunch of times and lost it all. I had no idea how to keep money. I didn't know that was a separate thing. I thought you just got to hustle and make it. And then you're fine. Made millions of dollars, lost every penny. And you see this with like boxers, like Mike Tyson and different things. Like I, I made money and lost it, lost it all to nothing, like upside down, like have less than no money and a bunch of addictions. And I felt even more empty when I had money and was in that, you know, uh, isolated place. I got a condo and a high rise at one point. I was like, yeah, you know, I made it so far. You know, I didn't even try to like tell that story. I pretended I never was from where I was from. Like I didn't have the upgrowing. Uh, I, I just put on a face, you know, wore a, you know, wore a button up suit, covered my tattoo. That your value is going to be how much money you're going to carry or it's the fanciest car or number of cars you're going to have. I mean, these, some of these rappers didn't have nothing when they started. And the only thing that, that they seem to be going towards is money separates me, but they don't realize that the money wasn't the goal, ever was. But that's where they think. And then when they're in that world, I know, they you feel the same way. What what was it for? I'm not any happier. I'm not any more together. I'm not any better. There's, the crisis still happened. You still have to deal with the, the love of your lives that don't love you, broken hearts, everything. Loss is still part of your life. And they can't seem to realize that it's not the money that's going to change that. Um, and so I think what, what it is that I found is it's finding your innate purpose. And even if there's no money involved, you're better off trying to be that person you were gifted to be than to make money to show other people how well you made it. Now, as, as you point out, I've made it as a writer. I'm well known um, and I've been able to survive in it in such a way that I'm better off than a lot of people I know. But what I did with my money from always running my books is put it in this culture center. I didn't put it in a new car or in a swimming pool. I put it back in the community. Yeah, it wasn't, it was, it wasn't in the stock market growing interest. It was back in the community. If I did, nobody would complain. But I didn't feel my soul was going there. My soul went, can we broke 20 years now we've had this center. We've helped a lot of young people. Now we've got eight young people staff hired that came out of the community. We've hired them, we trained them. Now they're running it. Me and my wife have turned everything over about two, three years ago, we turned everything over to them. Uh, we don't run it on a daily basis. We're there on the board, we help, we guide, they still see us as mentors, but now it's in their hands. And that's what we, that's where my money went. I, that was, but I got a nice home. I got a nice place. I don't, I don't need a big, huge, giant mansion. Uh, but what I do need is to have, is to have engendering of new community, engendering of new ideas, engendering of, of, uh, of uh, ways to go and think and healing. How can we engender the healing we need? I think I keep going to this thing and I never actually say it. Is, uh, this person said to me that, uh, Charles, it was Charles Eisenstein, he said that he believes that the future uh, leaders of this country and of the world, frankly, are going to come out of the prisons. Uh, because until you understand the underbelly of the society and of the of the world the animus mundi the world soul until you dive into the underworld you don't know how the system functions it's like trying to operate on a business or on a patient without knowing what's inside like i'm going to go operate on this body that's sick but i don't know what's inside of it because i don't want to open it up and look at the blood and the guts and the all you know the pus and everything else you need somebody that's been in that shit you can't have a billionaire uh, that's always been a millionaire uh, running a country well because they don't understand a gigantic segment of the population. And the sad thing is, is that 
people want to identify with the billionaire. They're scared to identify with somebody that's been through a whole bunch of shit because it's frightening. They carry a story with them that scares them about their own past. It's their own disowned past that they're afraid of. It's their own disowned roots, like how they ended up here. You know, they're not from Whiteland. They're not from, you know, Forbes magazine, you know, genealogy, you know, nobody is frankly, not even, you know, not even our current president. If you go back in time, you know, there, you know, nobody's from that. This is an idealized, crazy place that people think that they're there. You know, you've got everybody glamorizing this life that's not real, this, this fictitious world. You know, our whole industry, our whole economy is just built on the backs of, of slavery and debt servitude and uh, a lot of the indentured global South, you know, people in Mexico and Brazil and Africa and Vietnam and, you know, well, people don't realize we've been given all these illusions and we think they're real, but they're all made up. I mean, white supremacy is made up. Uh, the wage labor system is a made up thing, but we all go to work and punch in. Uh, mortgages, made up completely, but here we are dying to meet our mortgage payments or even rents or everything that we're living under is a made up system that they make it seem like this is God given. Scarcity is made up, but yet we're all scarcity. It's a scarcity system, but it's all by design. It's like, wait a minute, you don't have to have scarcity. Uh, if you look at nature, and if you work with nature, respect nature, there's abundance built into nature. Of course, you can take so much out of nature and destroy its abundant qualities, but if you work with it, it's regenerative. Why can't we make our societies regenerative? Why can't we make our relationships regenerative? We've lost that capacity. This is why it's good to go to old ideas that were probably done in different times, but to see how they resonate in the times that we're in, the highly technicalized, highly you know, uh, developed, complex world, they actually can ring true if we understood that, because I think regeneration is innate to who we are, but we have lost our way about it, and now we don't know how to do it. Now it's all scarcity. We're building our, our whole culture, as you know, scarcity models, the whole ghetto prison world is scarcity and i try to work with these guys and as you know i've been doing it for so long as you know i i, I met guys like that who have transformed their lives uh, one of my best friends he just got out of prison he did 38 years 38 years in california prison system and uh he used to be uh, uh a white guy from north long beach but he used to he murdered somebody when he was 19. he used to be into the skinhead movement he was totally you know but he said fuck that i have no hook because but anyway he said i'm not no more. He gave it up. And he became one of the most decent, hardest working guys in the prison. Uh, he actually created the first honor yard in the whole state of California. And the honor yard was predicated on all races, that nobody's going to be separated, and no gangs, no drugs, um, no violence, and programming. Nothing but programming. They started at Lancaster, it's the A yard, which is different than the general population, B yard. I go to both yards. They're still lifers. These are still hardcore guys. This is still a high end high security prison, but they were given opportunities. And he was one of the guys that authored that whole thing. It became the only honor yard among California's 34 prisons. Uh, he was given life without possibility of parole, but we got a letter sent to the governor. He commuted that sentence. So he got paroled out. He's been out for about two years. He's now speaking, going around places. And by the way, he helped co-edit this book. His name is Kenneth. Yeah, he worked with me. I got all these guys to send stuff in. He was, me and him put this together. So I, I work with people like that and I've seen transformation. I mean, I've seen people from the worst situation you can imagine. 
Uh, they talk about black and brown and prisons can't get along. And I get all that, but I've been in situations in my class where there was one black guy who wanted to talk about suicide in, in, the, in the shoe, in the second grade housing unit. And he says, I was there in six years and I wanted to commit suicide. He says, I don't mind writing about it. I don't mind. You can tell he's been around, hardcore looking guy, but he's, he's really a decent guy. But he says, I don't mind talking about it because I'm not feeling that no more, but I want you to, to know. So he read it. And so we're all talking, and all of a sudden, one of the Chicano guys, older guy, he's been in prison for 35 years, gets up and walks over to him. And I'm thinking, oh, oh maybe there's going to be a problem. We're all stopped. We look at him, he goes over and hugs him. Because that Chicano guy did 26 years in the shoot. And he hugged him because he says, you wrote what I've, I've been there. I know exactly where you're about. So you see those moments in which you transcend all the terrible barriers and walls and blocks and all the racial politics and the gang politics. I have seen it get transcended if you create the environment for that to happen. Gosh, I feel like everyone needs to hear that. You know that that story, and I think that's what Michael Mead and you do at these at these years. I'm sad that it didn't happen in in August. I wanted to go to it, and I think that even people now, everybody that's experienced quarantine, has experienced this feeling of being separate and isolated and afraid uh, and alone, and uh, not to any degree like the guy with 26 years in the shoe. But if you hear the guy that's done 26 years in the shoe, just like Carl Jung, the, the Swiss psychiatrist says, if you study the people on the extreme ends of things, you could learn about you, the, the less severe. So like if you hear this guy 26 years in the shoe and you hear his story, you're, the guy that's been in quarantine because of COVID, it's not that he should not feel bad being in quarantine and COVID, but he could hear that story and go, holy shit. How is people, how do they, how do we as human beings agree to even put anybody in a solitary confinement for 26 years? I spent a month in solitary confinement. Mine was terrifying because they never had an end date. So they did, they just put me in there and they said, we don't know why you're here. We, you know, I didn't even say this much. They're like, it's this code. You're going here. And the, the reason was, is it was a juvenile crime that I got named in when I was 15 and I was 21. And it was up in uh, San Leandro, up in, uh, on 150th. And they put me at 21 in solitary confinement in juvie. So they couldn't put me with gen general population. They put me there. And the system is fucked, uh, frankly. Excuse my language. But I mean, I don't know of a better word than fucked. I mean, they didn't know what to do. Uh, this is, people don't understand how unorganized it is. If you don't have money, you can't figure out. Like, you could just get lost there. Like, I was there for a month. They didn't know why I was there. No one told me why I was there. I went to court and they just didn't hear anything. They're like, oh, you have to go to court. You're on this roster. You go. And then you go back to this solitary climate. Nobody talks to you. And my public defender, whatever that was, he was drunk. You know, he was drunk. Like he would, act, I could smell the alcohol in his breath. He would, wouldn't make eye contact with me. I'm like, what the fuck am I here for? Like, why am I here? And I'm running things through my head. I'm like, oh, I remember I was in that place. I wonder if that dude got killed. Oh, I wonder if this happened. I wonder if like... Like I'm, I started inventing, maybe I killed someone that I didn't know I did. And then like, they know, and they're waiting for me to cop. I mean, I, you have, when you have a month by yourself with no books, with no pillow, you your mind will come up with all sorts of crazy stories that you're never getting out of there, that you're evil and God hates you. You don't even know, you don't even believe in God anymore, but somehow you convince yourself, maybe there is a God and you're going to go to hell forever. I mean, and you have nobody to talk to. So this shit is just going through your head. I think I got two showers a week. And you didn't get any yard time because there was uh, when when you're in solitary confinement as an adult in juvie. So I'm just sitting there, and it didn't have. If I knew I was going to be there for 30 days going in, 
I could have easily done it. You know, like, oh, now it's like 29 days. Now it's 28 days. But it's like, no, you're just here. And I think that this was a wounding that I needed to have. You know, I needed to feel like what it's like to feel indefinitely stuck in a hole. And, uh, and when I did a boga to get, clear, to, get, to get off of opiates, which is a route from Africa that they take in a ceremonial tribal way, the most terrifying moment of it was the end after the medicine had worn off. Uh, and I was in a position where aliens were putting me into a capsule that I would live forever and, and be tortured forever. And every moment would be the worst moment of my life for all eternity. And I experienced that. And in some ways, that was similar to how I felt in that solitary confinement sound. It's probably how this guy, similar to how he felt, that was in there for 26 years, you know, but he was probably certain he was never getting out. I started to lose that hope. But your stories, their stories, and uh, he would tell you, because I talked to him, he didn't know when he was getting out. The, the years kept building up. They don't tell you, you know, 20, he shouldn't have done 26 years, it didn't matter. Indeterminate, it goes on and on. Um, I was the same way when I was 16. I was put on a murderer's role for three murders I didn't do. I had a cell next to Charles Madsen. It was all black and brown except for one white guy, Charles Madsen. I was in this situation without knowing what was going to happen, without knowing if I was going to be charged. I didn't do the murders, but it didn't matter. You're sitting there. You're going to be charged. You're going to end up facing it. Uh, this is the world that they've created. It throws you off. You've got no grounding. You know what I'm saying? You got nothing to hang on. There's no anchoring anymore. So now you're floating in the world and you're pretty much going to go wherever the stream takes you. That's the kind of world they create, especially in prisons. So a lot of these guys are like following the stream and they don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes when they think, well, I got a parole date, you don't actually get one. And when you do, you don't, you're actually are told, no, you're not ready. I'm not ready. I've been doing, I know a lot of these guys, many years. I've been doing good. No, no. They play with you. They know they got you on that string and so a lot of these guys are the same way there is no certainty the only certainty like you point out is just just the certainty is that you're not you're going to be lost you're going to be forgotten and nobody's going to care that's what hangs over you sobering sobering feeling it's i don't have these conversations much anymore frankly uh it feels good to to to, to talk to you about this and the fact i don't really social i don't associate with most of the people i i associated with growing up uh, with the exception of, you know, Darnell from time to time, who you met at the, at the retreat, uh, most everybody else has, you know, disappeared, you know, from years of coming in that, you know, everyone's projects. So they come in, they live there for a couple months, they get evicted or their mom goes to prison and then they go to a group home or whatever, you know, and the group homes aren't there. It's just people that are there with their parents. There's no group homes where I was at. It was just, you know, people barely hanging on. They couldn't, they, they got evicted out of Oakland that then moved to this weird part of Hayward where it's all projects. And uh, yeah, I feel like, you know, it, it'd be good for a lot more people. I hope that they could hear this. And, uh, and I think a challenge that I run into is that my mom who lived there, but as an adult, you know, uh, and she's, she's had it, she's had a, you know, pretty hard time with a lot of things, but uh you know, she's in a place now where I think she's forgotten all of this. And she tells herself a story that like, you know, oh, I walked the dog through there and, you know, no one ever attacked me or whatever that is. And, uh, you know, it was very different for her. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I hear her kind of being a lot more judgmental of people. Why don't they just clean their act up or, or, or whatever that is? And they, and they look at these situations from the perspective of what they would do. It's like, oh, if you put me there and then I got out, 
Like I would do this, 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 but they don't understand that like they have friends that are also in that situation that they have like ties to, and they have family in that situation that they also have ties to, and they have, you know, they, you know, they're, they, they don't know how to manage their money. They've got, you know, they've got a criminal record, so they can't get the same kind of job you think you could get, you know, like they have tattoo, I tattoos on my hands that I've gotten removed, you know, like they have tattoo. I had a broken miss. I have a missing front tooth and a broken front tooth. Like, like you don't like walk in and get the best job. There's a reason I did door to door sales, you know, like, you know, oh, yeah. And you got these guys tattooed all over their faces and then, and their necks and they're never going to work at a job. And of course, they can get tattooed and move, but that's actually costly and it's hard to get into. And the ones that are free got lineups lists, you know, they got waiting lists for how long. It isn't easy. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you got to take an account. This is not a road, but it can be done. And that's the work that I do. And I tell people, listen, man, just hang in for the long haul. Don't just think about the immediate gratification moment that you think you're going to get it because you're going to hang in here. But once you reach, go to that spiral development, you will get through new levels of understanding, new levels of opportunities. You just got to make sure that you hang in there. My son went through all that. And uh, again, now he's sober and clean. He's doing really good. Um, and uh, I've been sober for 27 years after seven years on heroin and then 20 years drinking on top of it. And so now I got, I was 27 years um, drugs and, and drinking. Now I'm 27 years sober. I finally this year reached the same amount of time sobriety as I was when I wasn't sober. So I'm reaching a, a, a nodal line in my life. And people got to think about that. There are lines that you can cross if you hang in there. This isn't easy. My son's getting through it now, 45 years old. And it's hard too. A lot of people think, you know, oh, you could just stop doing opiates just stop just say no or something people don't get that it's like no i have a granddaughter just so you know one of my son's kids who uh was on oh um crystal meth and fentanyl for four years that is really bad now you know what I, I, heroin is one thing and things have gotten so bad with all the stuff out there it's not even beyond i don't know what crystal meth is like i did speed i did all kind of old shit but that's this is new shit and fentanyl is like 50 times worse than some of the heroin we used to do so she got in on that and i thought oh no i'm gonna lose another kid there's another generation caught the thing with her which is good she's uh, 26 years old she was uh, arrested and she didn't like jail <laughs> and uh she didn't want to end up like her dad all those years in prison so she came and said you know what i don't want to go i don't want to stay in prison i don't want to do this so we helped her get recovery she's been in recovery for about two years now uh, we didn't think she'd make it she ran away from the first place she got kicked out of the second place but she eventually we got a place now she's doing well but it is a very difficult thing 26 years old and she's already like a grown person she's already been through so much just four years of this junk has oh which Oh, you know, made her life so completely. She become older overnight. So I, um, I think that's the concern is that those things will trap you. There's no doubt. Some people will may not make it, but you got to know that there is ways through this. You just got to be able to understand it's possible. But you can't do it if you don't. Like I told her, she wanted to to know it was the best thing I ever learned in recovery. And I go, I'm gonna tell you something. Community is good. You know, having other people there, talking to somebody, that's all good. But the one thing that I learned more than anything is looking at that guy in the mirror. That's the only one that I have to answer to. 
everybody tells you the right thing. She said she wasn't listening to her dad, my son, wasn't listening to me. She said the only person you got to listen to is that person in there. If you don't like that person, there ain't nothing we can tell you that's going to change anything. You got to love that person, even though you know that person's been through hell and back. You got to care enough about that person to say, I don't want to be in this hole. She never recognized or said, you said something smart, Grandpa, but I knew it helped her. I knew it helped us know the only one you have to answer to is that person in there. Forget what anybody else is telling you. Yeah, I get it, and it's good. But man, that's the only one. And if you if you deal with that, you'll we get stronger. Uh, so she she did. She so far she's doing good. Uh, I hope it lasts. I know Michael Mead um, speaks to the fact that uh, in the wound is the gift, and uh, maybe all the madness that's happening in the world, maybe as maybe unfair as this may sound and it probably maybe is unfair in the short term or maybe it's just unfair at overall is that as crazy as it sounds the healing of the world may be in the hands of the most wounded as opposed to the people that appear to be so privileged uh it might be somehow in the most wounded gathering together somehow and seeing their commonalities and uh and working together somehow to take our broken pieces, you know, and gather at the line or gather in that circle and do the dance that's going to, that it's going to take to heal what's happening. Cause if, if nothing happens, I mean, uh, the world right now is, you know, aside from me being, I'm, I'm in a very magically blessed situation. I, I live on 86 acres of paradise in Hawaii with my own pri private river stream and People think, oh, you know, you, you know, you, you probably saved up money to buy. I had nothing saved for this. It was all gifted. Uh, somebody was stewarding this land for the last 26 years that was basically holding it for the time that somebody came and prayed about it. I mean, just unimaginable levels of synchronous. I had a dream about it. I mean, just strange things happened that landed us here. Uh, I, def I definitely, I can't take credit f for much of it aside from like, keeping going is pretty much all like it wasn't due to some clever cunning strategy or anything but uh i picture maybe where the healing may come from or maybe it's already coming from is as strange as it may sound is is it might be in places like where the prisons where you're doing the work and that hug that that you know black man is getting from that brown man inside the cell that that sees that and reverberating out from there and not from the top down from somebody with billions of dollars on a tweet, you know, uh, putting, pinning people against each other and threatening people and mocking people. And another person may be coming out behind and saying, you know, Oh, I'll, you know, I don't really understand everybody, but you know, I'll do whatever, you know, I think is good or whatever. It might, the deeper work is happening, you know, in places where there's very little sunlight. And I think that opens the door to the possibilities of when I ran for governor, obviously I'm not your normal candidate. Uh, if I, former addict, you know, former alcoholic, you know, uh, former uh, gang member, former jailbird for, you know, whatever you want to call it, that could be now a voice that has something important to say, that has proven the, the possibilities of a changed life, what that means. And uh, that you can actually, and with all your ordeals, if you go through them, the way James Hillman talks about it with the hero's journey, if you get through them, you can actually give blessings to the world from these places. You can bless the world, you don't have to curse it. Because if you don't get through a property, 
all your ideas become curses. You know, but if you go through properly and you're going through all this pain and suffering and you go through that spiral development, you get to the point where now, because of what you learn, what you've been through, experiences that nobody else can give you, but you have it as part of you, you can bless your community, bless your family, bless the world. Uh, that's what people don't get. And it comes from people who have been screwed over, painful, traumatized, you know, have probably hurt others. Even people have killed people. I'm working with people who have murdered people, and they're doing beautiful work now. I'm sure you know Kisasi Hill. I don't yeah, know. Mm -hmm. I remember him. Looks like him. Denzel Washington. Yeah, really handsome guy. He did 27 and a half years in prison for murder, the same thing, but he's one of the a strong poet, beautiful soul, has a lot of beautiful connections. Tries how we hired him to work with our parolee housing, uh, teaching creative writing to parolees. So he's a uh, Another example, somebody been through it all, uh, was a shot caller for one of the big gangs in LA, and uh, now is, man, teaching poetry, doing poetry, doing drumming, and, and working with young people. Um, it, it's possible. And again, I'm not saying this is easy, nobody's saying that, but it's all possible. And if we set the situation right, work with people, I, I, don't, I call it not being scared straight, that doesn't work for me, but being cared straight way to care enough for somebody that they begin to care for themselves. It's like torture, right? If you, it, when someone becomes scared enough, I, I've heard this story that, you know, people that do torturing, it sounds like a simple art, you know, in the military when they torture people, uh, but they actually, it's a very uh, specific art, not that I support it in any way, but I, I'm pointing it out because of this whole scared straight idea. Uh, the thing is, is that the people that you're trying to scare straight are already so frightened that if you keep scaring them, they just, they don't feel anything anymore. Uh, just like if you torture somebody uh, in, in like prisoners of war, if you torture them too much, eventually the pain turns to pleasure and then it becomes this like Dionysian ecstasy. Like you're like cutting off parts of their body and they're moaning in, in orgiastic pleasure. And I think this is what happens in these extreme cases of extreme psychopaths or extreme, uh, you know, extreme people from the hood or people in war times, you know, they, they break. And uh, Char the same guy, Charles Eisenstein, I really love his work. It, he has this theory that the psychopaths, the people that you see that are psychopaths, are actually potentially, he believes that it's possible that they are the, the most sensitive. And so they're actually break even easier. So it's like they've experienced so much pain so quickly that they dis disconnect and feel nothing. And like they only can feel anything at all through other people. But I think instead of experiencing pain and suffering through other people and feeling some sense of aliveness, like bleeding to know you're alive, they could feel love or connection or care and that could reawaken them. So it's like, who are they going to meet? Are they going to meet that person that could really hold that place uh, and really care for them? And it doesn't have to be a mother Teresa or anything like it could be anybody. You know, I feel like a lot of times my partner, Madeline, my fiance, you know, her ability to like care for me as I'm like totally losing my damn mind. You know, I've, I finally started doing work around this stuff five years ago or four, a little over four years ago. I did the aboga six years ago, didn't do any more work. And then my, 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 all my, like, I used to be really muscular. My back went out and I became like almost paralyzed. I had to walk with a walker and everything else. And nothing was working. None of the doctors could explain what was going on. Essentially, it looked as though my tail was tucked between my legs. Like the fear that I would never let myself experience, like I was holding my tail back, my chest up, you know, like I'm like, you know, tough, tough guy with a hard looking face. 
you know, and eventually the truth of how I really felt that, you know, that wounded kid or whatever tucked underneath. And I had to go through, uh, thankfully, I, you know, as, as synchronicity or fate would have it, someone said, Hey, you know, maybe this is psychosomatic. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm making this shit up. Like, look, I'm trying to walk. I'll do whatever. I'll, look, I'll force myself to do it. And I'm like crippling my, my whole body is shaking, you know? And, uh, and I realized that, you know, what was that armor, that tough muscle that I had was shielding from living in such fear that I had to shield myself from. It's like, nobody's just a little kid born thinking, you know what I want to do? I want to be a tough kid and I want to be a tough man in prison with tattoos over my face and just beat people down for fun. And like protection too. I I remember all the tattoos that I would get, at least when I was growing up, because the Cholos were the ones that pioneered the black and gray style. We were doing it since the Pachuco days. And then, and then it got into, once we ended up all the prisons, entered the prisons, we were showing it to everybody else. They love that style. It's different than American style tattooing. But what is that? I, when I was growing up, we had these tattoos. So, white man, everybody know you're in a gang. It was our protection. People got scared of that face, of that, of that tattoo, of the, carrying something that they're afraid of. Well, who is this person? What is, it was about protection that everybody moved out of the way. You know, don't get near me. That's what my attitude was. I don't want you near me, and I'm going to treat you so badly that you want to do me. I remember uh, when adults try to reach out, I tell them, drop dead. I would laugh at them. I do. You know why? Because I couldn't emotionally invest in an adult because guess what? They would always walk away. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you knew that something you did was going to be too much for them, and they were going to walk. They were going to walk for sure. So. I'm going to spare myself the embarrassment and just like keep you away from me. And it's not even conscious. You don't even, I I didn't personally consciously do it. Like I wasn't like, I'm going to be a dick to keep everybody away. But I'm like, I just would find myself doing that myself personally. But what people don't realize, I'm convinced most young people, and I was probably one of them, really want respectful, meaningful relations with adults. We really didn't want it. But we couldn't find it, so we would treat every adult like shit because that way they wouldn't mess with us. They wouldn't walk away. They wouldn't. Parents, everybody walks away. But, you know, I'm convinced we really do, which is where uh, we come in as adults working with young people. If we can stay consistent, we can let them know why we're here. We let them know it's a long run. It's not about we're going to save you. It's about giving them the tools, resources, connections they need to save themselves. If they could understand what that dynamic is, they would hang on to you. Because I've had that. I've had these guys tell me, that same thing, drop day. I don't want to do with you, man. Hardcore guys and you coming out of juvie, wherever it may be. But you know what? They see me coming around. They see me. I, I don't mean I don't get mad. I'm a human being. I says, man, why'd you get mad at me? Because I'm a human being, dude. You just call me out. I'm going to get mad. But guess what? I don't stop. I don't stop. I'm coming back. I'm coming back the next morning. Then they hang on to because they really want that. It, 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 they won't, again, it's not a conscious thing, but they really want to have somebody that they can go to that was hanging there with them through all their struggles and pains and all their emotional ups and downs, you know. Yeah, well, what comes to mind for me right now, too, is uh, thinking about how people that grow up in this way get, you know, they're violent. Like they get this label of violent. Uh, like violence, I look at the word, what does it mean? Violence, the, t- the definition is an undue use of force. That's violence. But they're not actually violent. They're conditioned into being this way. And something that I learned early on uh, as a kid, and I'm sure pretty much everyone in prison knows the same lesson, but a lot of my listeners haven't been to prison, um, probably, I'm guessing. Who knows? I don't know, but I don't think so. Uh, but 
what happens is if somebody starts a fight or somebody starts violence and it's not just violence like it's not just that someone has to come up and swing or push on push you or even say a word the more early on that you could demonstrate uh there's a heavy metal group with a song called vulgar album called vulgar display of power the 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 more quickly you could display a vulgar dis that you could exhibit a vulgar display of power the better uh because you could avoid the altercation before it happens because the minute the altercation happens you are forced to take it to the limit otherwise you're the bitch or you're the weaker one and uh you know it's a it's a tough weird eye for an it's not even eye for an eye it's like i've got to you know i've got to hit somebody the minute i remember i learned this i learned this when i was a kid the minute somebody the minute you think someone is going to fight you or wants to fight you you hit them you know because if you wait people are going to everyone's going to take you to whatever that level is so if they could just look at you funny or punk you or 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 whatever it is and and i made the mistake of not doing shit for a while and you know hey why boy like people throwing rocks and hit me in the face you know and eventually i had to fight you know and uh whether i wanted to or not and eventually i learned just be as pro, you know proactive you know somebody would move in some way and just boom you know they 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 get hit and it's you know you know, one thing that I learned is, is that you're pointing out is you got to hit them first and hit them a lot. Uh, and if they still get, and then if they do get up, we start running. <laughs> because I mean, if they can take all that, right now. But the idea is you hit them first and you hit them a lot so that they won't get up. Or um, uh, when I was in juvenile hall, the, the thing was you got to fight the biggest guy there. And you know he's going to kick your butt, but guess what? The respect you get for fighting him and getting your butt kicked was more valuable, you know, than me fighting 20 guys over a period of time. You know what I mean? It's like, who's the biggest, who's the toughest guy? Or can just go out and they go, man, you, you, you took it, man, I'm game. And it's okay. He beat you up, but guess what? This guy's game. You know, you learn these little tricks of how to keep yourself valid in a world that doesn't know how to validate other ways, you know? And that's, and that's, and that's where you, and, and that's where you, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I still, I still struggle so many years being out of that mess, you know, so many, so many years. And, you know, something could happen where somebody's driving and, you know, ah, da, 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 and like, I just feel that overwhelming, just, and I'm like, whoa, chill, chill, you know, chill out, you know? And, uh, and I mean, that's the, that's the kind of healing that we've got to do. Cause so many people, we can't just throw everybody in prison forever. Like, I, I don't, I don't think this is a sustainable way to be and a compassionate way to be like, and I've been fortunate that I worked with in, like the Navajo and other indigenous people who know not to send people away. I worked in this really big case of a young man, 16 years old who killed uh, a Navajo police officer. Uh, he was in crystal meth, you know, just choked him to death. Uh, and of course the state wanted to come in. The federals comes in because it's a reservation. They want to give him a death penalty give him an adult sentence and the novel reservation came in. No, we want them to go through what we do. We want them to give him a lot of resources and programs change, get him out when he's 21 years old. And the reason I got brought in, he loved my book when he was going to high school. His teacher was a friend of mine in the Navajo Res. He says, this guy loves your book. Can you talk to him? So I talked to him. I stayed in touch with him in prison. We worked with the Navajo tribe to give him the situation. He actually did it, went through it, 21 years old, got out, married, a Hopi girl, he started his own business. He's been out for like 20 some years and doing 
very well. What if we had thrown him away? What if we had put him away and just say, oh, give him the death penalty, whatever it is. Uh, it was a waste of humanity. What we did, it doesn't get a lot of news, but it's, that's how the reservation had to work, is they gave him an opportunity, again, the tools or resources for he himself to figure out how am I going to save myself. And he's doing it. He's doing it. And he's done it. He's not hurting nobody. And uh, people don't understand there are ways to go. We just always close that door and say, there's no way to go. These guys are lost causes. You got to put them away and cost more money, taxpayers' money, to put them away, keeping them fed and keeping them in, in, in the dark uh, for years and years and years. And if you just gave them something decent and meaningful and, and that can validate who they are and give them tools in the beginning, in the front end, if we had done that, we would have saved a lot more in the long run. Because some of these guys come out of prison, they're still in bad shape. Nobody's done anything with them. And so they're going to be more dangerous in the streets. You know, they're going to be even more. And it's not, and, and the harsh punishments that, that happen with no, with no digging in, it's complicated to try to come in and help somebody and really help them figure out. I mean, prison's not rehabilitation, at least not for the vast majority. It's a place where you get even more hardened, you know? It's really um, weird. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, here's a place you go even more hardened. You know, we're going to put even stricter guidelines on you when you get out. You know, you know why, you know, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm going to say it. Uh, the reason, uh, part of the reason, I don't think that the only reason that, uh, you know, you know, black people are getting shot by cops is because of racist cops. Although there are probably a lot of racist cops, but a lot of it is that the person is getting pulled over is probably fucking terrified that they're going to get arrested sometimes. And, you know, cops have heard, you know, shit, you arrest some dude, you know, like, What's the chance he's going to pop a cap in your ass? You know, like if you're getting pulled over and you're getting pulled over for a taillight and you know, you've got two strikes, you're in California, you've got two strikes and you've got a chance to shoot a cop and get away with your life. What are you not going to do it? You're going to just like, you know, get out of the car, put your hands behind your back. Like, you know, there's no way out. I, w I watched uh, your video on your website too, just recently. It's just like, man, you just throw away the key. You can't just lock somebody up and throw away the key. You know, and the reason that cops are getting shot is because people know. They're like, dude, I go to prison. I ain't ever getting out of this system. I ain't ever getting out, right? I'm like, even if I get out of prison, then I'm still living a, a prison, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, somebody's life who, you know, is, is a felon's life, you know, and that goes with the shit jobs that you take, the shitty places you live, you know, it comes with, it comes with all of that, you know? But even in the short term, what happens when you're poor, you got a car, your tail lights out, but let's say uh, you got a warrant or let's just say you have too many tickets, they impound your car. Yeah, yeah. They put you in jail. You lose your job. You can't pay for the car, so you lose your car. You you, it, so some people just want to avoid that short-term stuff. Yeah, the long-range stuff, but just the short-term Totally. Yeah. You're, and then you're in jail and then your girl starts, you know, your girl ends up hooking up with somebody else, gets pregnant, has his kid. Now he wants to, you know. Yeah, just the stat is enough to say, I want to not try to get in this mess. Uh, I'm going to run away. I'm going to do maybe escape, do something. So I won't get up. If people don't realize how hard it is and we've created those situations where those are the options that people have. They're not really options. You know, I believe in but those aren't options. Our society doesn't give people the same kind of options that other people might get. We have to make those quick decisions, which are kind of bad news in the long run, but they're, they're quick. It's like I tell people, joining the gang in those neighborhoods that you grew up in, that I know about, that I grew up in, that my son grew up in, 
being in a gang is a rational decision to make. It's not a stupid decision, not a bad kid decision. It's rational depending on those situations you're in. It made sense for me to join this gang. I was a terrible person. It just made sense. And then, of course, the gangs got, got you in their, what I call the web, the, the, La Vida Loca, the crazy life. And once you're in that web, you got to do what that web expects of you. You know, there was three things they told us La Vida Loca stood for, the three dots that people put. I have this tattoo of the people across. And it's like you're either going to be dead, you're either going to be an addict, or you're going to be in prison. So we accepted those things. What terrible, that's no choices, but we accepted them. We weren't scared of death. We were standing street corners, bullets flying. We wouldn't even run. That's how dumb you might say we were. But the, we, we weren't. If my time is my time, I go. Or the attic, who's, man, everybody became an addict in my neighborhood. Every single person in my neighborhood became an addict. We weren't scared of it. And if we died with a good hit, you know, it's like, maybe that's the way to go. Or being in prison, who was scared of prison? Prison, everybody respected. So that's that. Those are the choices that we knew we had and we could deal with. Those aren't choices, but that's what the world that we were in. Yeah, it's the illusion of choice, kind of like our political system, frankly. This illusion that we that we have choice for real change. And uh, I think we're gonna be waiting a long time if we wait for the current political leaders to to do to do some change. I think we would uh, personally if I if if I look at the world or this country as a ship and I'm looking for a captain, a leader of that ship, because I think leadership's important. Michael Mead said to me once. Uh, uh, we were running into some crazy stuff where I didn't know who to turn to. And I called my, he agreed to do a zoom call with me. This was a year and a half ago. We were running into somebody that had, you know, I'm self I'm self-diagnosing this person, but he thinks this person might've had borderline. And, uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to respond. Like it, like the nicer we were, the crazier response we got and just, you know, and, uh, he said, you know, the problem is, is that you always need a leader in some way. And the problem, the other problem is, is that you don't want the leader to be running everything. So that is the paradox that we're in type of thing. You use a different word, but personally, I would like somebody that's leading the ship or captaining the ship. If we're going to talk about a ship, like a country that's been through the waters that has gone through the Bermuda triangle, uh, that has gone through, uh, you know, where I grew up, the Jackson triangle, you know, that's gone through these places and made it through and understands these places. And it has resources to like actually to navigate it, you know, or at least like the president should have some advisors around them that he actually listens to. But if he hasn't had any of these experiences, he won't listen. It won't make sense to him. He's like, well, what's the most efficient way? You've got to punish people. Like when I punish my kid, it works. I'm like, that's because your kid wants a toy. Like, like, like this doesn't work. You, you, you front on, you like try to punish somebody that's told if they look weak, the, the punishment is going to be 10 times worse. They're going to respond with even more like force, you know? Yeah, well, it's an issue of if you defiant, you get punished, you're defiant. My son was defiant. Everybody knew he was in trouble. He would overturn all the tables. You knew he needed to be helped or not helped, but he, he was always, and my daughter, his sister, who was only two years younger, she went the other way. She went compliant. She was worse shape than he was. She was cold, hiding out. Maybe if I turn myself invisible, they won't see me. They won't understand me, but that's okay. She was in another world. And uh, recently my son, you know, she's 43 years old now, so I can't treat none of them like kids. But recently my son says, you know, you know who the real gangster is, man? It's my sister, your daughter. She's the real gangster, man. She's hardcore inside, you know, because she, too much compassion. She didn't go to prison. She didn't do all that stuff. But man, 
she's carrying a lot of pain after all those years. And it's like, okay, they're both deviants of, not, not deviants, they're both um, woundedness, woundedness, uh, the defiant and the compliant, the wounds, wounds that people have to address. You can't just look at somebody and say, oh, they're quiet and easy going, they're okay. You don't know what is aiding them. You don't know what's inside and them. Sometimes that what... person shows up and shoots up a school or uh, yeah. goes on a mass or killing suicide. You know what happens. Suicide. Yeah. This person was in good shape. You don't know. So that's why you can't really gauge all that. But again, a good captain would know. A good captain would know the seas of relationships of people, would understand where we need to go, how to take people, would understand that you've got to give people, people on the front end more than way to the back end after they already lost it or they're already, like you say, become psycho from uh, problematic and then they put them in, in a, an institution for the rest of their lives. That is not the way to go. Um, you've got to think about what they're going through, the development that they're going through. We've forgotten about all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Kind of madness, I think, on our part, not their part. You know, I, I, some, a memory comes back to me. I don't know. You're probably familiar with Tukey Williams. Yeah, yeah. I, I was involved in his case. Uh, a good friend of mine is a lady that wrote his um, autobiography, Barbara Bignell, who has been doing work in Oakland. I think she was doing a lot of work there. She, she wrote uh, his in my memoir, uh, Autobiography. Uh, in fact, we were in England together, me and her, talking to, we went to a prison there, and we talked to all these Afro-Caribbean communities. So I know about Tukey Williams' case very much because I was uh, writing letters and everything uh, to try to save him, which didn't work out. Because he was put to death in like 2005 or 2006, right? From what I remember. Schwarzenegger, that crazy movie guy. Now he's going around killing people. Man, we're a term Terminator. He was a Terminator, but it's a fantasy. Yeah. And then he becomes governor. He's terminating people. And I go, what is wrong with you? That was a stupid fantasy. Here's real world life. It's crazy. It's like, it's like Trump was the president in the Simpson episode, and then Trump's the president of the United States. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's quite interesting to see, uh, regardless of whether you're, whatever your political background is, uh, is to see the, the correlations between fantasy and then it actually happening in, you know, waking physical reality, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I, from, from what I know, which is very little about Tukey Williams is that he was the founder or some people say he was the founder of the Crips. Yeah. Well, he actually wasn't, but he was one of the big, uh, um, what's his name? Ray Washington was the founder, but he actually met with Ray. He had another gang and he, he, Collaborators. I want. I want to be a crip. So he was one. One of the early big leaders, and uh, they got him for some murders that he never. He said, "I didn't do these murders." But I tell you one thing about him. Even if he did do these murders, because I work with people who have murdered people, I did it. Okay, fine. They're still doing some good. What he did in the last few years of his life was help young people rethink their world, reimagine it, not get involved with gangs. And he did books that went to young people. He helped more people get out of thinking of being in gang than anything Schwarzenegger would ever do. Ever, ever do. He and, helped and people leave that world than any, anything he could have done. It's crazy. It's like, hey, there's everybody's drowning. Wait, there's somebody over here rescuing you know, people. They've re they're rescuing, they're pulling people out of the river Oh, we've got to kill him because because it says in this book somewhere that that's what we've got to do. You know, you know, and, and there's so much of this. I mean, we like we don't feel into our heart. Like even with religions, you know, people take the religion as literal truth. You know, we gotta 
you know, uh, punish this, these types of people or, or whatever it says. So in this book, and then, you know, you have people that go around wielding this book as their authority, you know, and it's like, Oh, if they say something from this book, then it's gotta be true. Whether it's the law or whether it's a religious book or, or whatever, we've lost touch with like, what is the compassionate thing to do? Like, like I like, what would I do in this situation? If I was this person, you know, what is this person doing? Like, what, what is this person's value at this moment in time? You know, like, I mean, how much of a threat was, was, uh, was Tukey Williams in prison for life? You know what I mean? I'm sure there would have been people that would have been happy to, you know, you could say, well, it's costing taxpayers money. I guarantee you there were people that would have donated the tax, whatever the taxpayers would have normally pay to keep him, keep him in prison. You know what I mean? You know, or even, even probably people would have put money together to get him out of prison to go work and speak at the schools, you know, and like paid for a police officer to watch him nonstop if it made the public more, com- more safe and comfortable with an ankle bracelet, you know, like <laughs> he could do a Zoom call. Zoom, he could be doing Zoom call. There's so many things. How is this shit not going on? There's so many things that could happen. When you kill people, and I get it from both ends, when you're killing people in the streets, I get it. They're destroying possibilities, but it's also true in the prisons. When we do it in the name of our communities, our state, our country, I don't want to do that. I don't want my state and country to be responsible for the murder of these people. Uh, death penalty, no. I mean, there's a lot of things we could do. Like I said, I work with that Navajo kid. He's doing very well because there was so much attention paid to the pain he went through. And I'll tell you one thing really quick about him. I, I caught his story. I put it in one of my books. When he was seven years old, he accidentally killed his three-year-old son, brother. He, there was a gun somewhere. He didn't know it. That was a little plaything. Seven years old, and he accidentally had a bullet, shot his own brother, and killed him. Nobody was there for him to do that. He was punished and put down then. He was knocked around. He never got the healing from that terrible situation that he had to face his own brother dying. And he wrote this beautiful letter to me where he talked about that. He says, I need, I need to tell the story. He wrote about it, and it broke my heart. But I realized, wow, there's a, there's a seed that somebody needed to look at. Nobody bothered with that. But you look at that seed, and you say, okay, it wasn't your fault what happened. You're not to blame. You got to, you know, all these things that nobody would tell him. He carried that pain to so much that he ended up killing somebody else at 16. So this is the kind of a thing that we have to be more ready for when not we're not prepared for that kind of pain all we're prepared for is if you mess around you do anything wrong we've got a prison for you we're not preparing for the kind of world that we're actually in yeah it's it's uh more violence with more violence you know someone that's grown up in violence and then really harsh like not looking at their situation and looking at man it's so much work to fix to help this person we don't have time for it we don't have the money for it or whatever it is What's the cheapest way? And we, I see it everywhere. I see it with factory farming animals, you know, putting them in these terrible conditions and, you know, all that goes in with that. It's just all for efficiency. What's the, what's the cheapest way to get whatever this is on my plate? You pay more. In the long run, you pay more when somebody's being put to death and or spending 50, 60 years of their life behind bars. You're paying more in the long run. And so... Yeah, I think that we got to reimagine there's another way to go. This is why I'm for the defunding the police. It wasn't defunding the police in a vacuum. Putting the fund, taking care of people, providing treatment, providing whatever they need to get, get themselves going, address poverty, because that's the source of a lot of these crimes that nobody looks at. Poverty is a big issue. 
Poverty is not their choice. They're, they're in it. How do we address all these things that wouldn't require having a police come in like a, a occupied army? That's what people don't get. These are highly militarized people. And we're not even helping police officers. I, I, I got a niece that's a police officer. I got friends that joined the police force. I feel bad for them. On the other hand, I'm in their trenches. I go, man, you don't want to be responsible for things that society is responsible for and make you the guy now that has to go around and try to fix things. And you're putting too much stress on you. And of course, you're going to abuse people because you're overwhelmed. It's not your job to do everything society didn't do. Now they're making you the last you know, blue line to deal with everything. We're not even helping police by giving them all that. And the police, a lot of times, grow up in poor neighborhoods too. You know what I mean? And then, you know, they get shot at one time, and then they, that's their own. It's their own gang. You know, it's you know, it's like. So you know, I, I you know, uh, it's 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 not so simple. You know, it's like there the 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 dominoes have already been played out. You can't just eliminate all police instantly because then you who knows what the hell would happen because there's everything's wound up but if you keep punishing everyone that doesn't work either uh you know but i think a lot of this is perpetuated this whole like you know black against white white against black black against brown brown against white you know this is this is the story that keeps playing out over and over again and in the end you know people forget like well wait a second like how are we here like in this in this prison or this weird school and like what am i learning what what the hell are we doing how did we get here and uh i don't know that's probably a topic for a, another another episode but i would love to talk with you a, another time uh yeah any final things you want to share uh, i feel like we could keep talking but uh i know but i think yeah we should end i think i again i really love the fact that we got a little bit into healing healing is really part of the work it's something michael mead always said Healing is a revolutionary act, and I believe in that. So even as we have to make the political changes, the societal changes, all these things that we need to do, let's make sure healing is at the heart of it. Uh, and I'm, I'm definitely pushing that because healing is what we're, we need no matter what happens. What I'm, what I'm seeing is an image come to mind where uh, the prison system that's happening in the United States and the poverty ghettos and projects are like the abscess where like the rest of the culture has like pushed all of the waste of the body. If we're, if the, if the whole country is an organism, it's pushed all of its pain, all of its suffering, all of its lack, and it's shoved it onto a small group of people and say, you're different than us. Here you go. And, uh, you're, you're in this prison or this thing. And then some other people might feel, you know, a great sense of, you know, joy or whatever, like pointing it out, but like really, we don't need so many people pointing out. We need people helping, uh, helping these people that are in this place. Like, how do we help the people that are essentially carrying the shadow of our society? Uh, can't, you know, you're projecting all of it onto them. And uh, how, do we, how do we help them? And uh, I think that that's going to happen from just not from some world leader, but from just average everyday people looking at how they could help the people that are, you know, just maybe in your family you know, that, that cousin or whoever that is, that's just a total mess. You know, he's probably the hardest one to help, but maybe the one that, that needs it or deserves it the most, you know? Well, thanks, Zach. This has been great. I really appreciate it, man. Good to have these dialogues. Um, I hope we can take it around and let people hear it and we'll do it again, man. Good. How do people connect with your work? How do they find so, you? So uh, they come to my website. It's uh, LuisJRodriguez.com. 
Also, I recommend that cultural center that I have started. It's uh, diachucha.org, T-I-A-C-H-U-C-H-A.org. And if you go on Google and look up the Hummingbird Cricket Hour, it's the podcast that me and my wife have. It's an amazing podcast based on ancestral knowledge, indigenous thought, but also how it can be applied in the world that we're in today. And so I really recommend just look up the Hummingbird Cricket Hour with uh, Luis Mishkoat, it's like Willow Rodriguez, and my wife, uh, Trini Lasotel. Thank you, Luis. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.